My goal today is to paint a picture of the darkest day in order to show you your brightest hope. I'm asking you this morning to pay attention to your heart. How is it reacting to this text? Because if it is indifferent, there may be a spiritual problem there. Now, I take a risk there because I know if you find this sermon boring, it may not actually be the text. It may actually be my ability to communicate it. But I'm telling you, please, if I get dry and I begin to just talk along and you're getting nothing out of it, please open the scripture and look to the text and read it for yourself and say, Lord, what are you trying to tell me from this text? Because this text matters. So let me give you some context here of Zephaniah. Zephaniah prophesies in about 600 B.C., in the 600 B.C.s. He's likely at the end of the reign of Josiah. Now, if you're familiar with the scripture, there is evil king, evil king, evil king, evil king, and God raises up Josiah. Josiah is a great king who brings reform to the land. He removes the Baal worship. He gets rid of the high places. The asterisk poles come down. And so there is reform in the land, and the people follow their king. The problem is, they were following him, but their hearts were still cold. Immediately after Josiah uh, passes away, Several more evil kings arise, and the people go right after what they wanted to do before. And so God, because of this sinfulness, even in a time of spiritual reform, God was going to send the people of God into captivity for 70 years. And many would die in the process or go into slavery. And this day of judgment that Zephaniah is prophesying is also a picture of a greater day of judgment that is coming. When Jesus returns to judge the quick and the dead, as we read, remember, these things actually happened. They were prophesied to happen when Zephaniah wrote them, but then they actually happened. God is faithful to his promises and he's also faithful to his threats. And soon, the final judgment will be a reality for all of us. And as we read in verse 14, it's going to be sooner than we realize. It is near and it is hastening fast. No matter how godly we think our community is, this day is coming, and it will take many more people with it than we expect. So let's look at this text, and very quickly, the first thing I'm going to do is give you three aspects of the great day of the Lord in the text that we just read. Number one, look at verse 14. It says, the sound heard on that day will be bitter. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening found. The sound of that day, the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. 
the people will be wailing. Voices will be screaming out loud in terror. People who were able to maintain their dignity all their lives will immediately become undignified. John Piper gives a great illustration. He says, you know, if you're walking down the hall of a hospital and you heard loud cries of pain, how you would respond to that, those cries, would depend whether you were on the delivery ward or the cancer hospice care ward. Now, his point was for believers, when trials come, God is working them to, for our good. But this, these cries are similar to the cries in the hospice care of the cancer ward. They're hopeless cries. Two, the emotional state experienced on that day will be distress and anguish. Look at verse 15. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Those who rested comfortably in the world will be unsettled and they will find no peace because they have rejected the Prince of Peace. Three, it will be a day of darkness, alarms, and battle cries. Verse 16, a day of trumpet blast, a day of battle cry against the fortified cities, against the lofty battlements. There will be alarms ringing all through the land. And there will be alarms ringing internally in hearts as well, going, oh no. It says in verse 12 that when this happens, the Lord is going to go with lamps and search out the people. There is no place to hide. That actually happened. When the invaders invaded the land, they went through homes and found everybody. No one could escape. This actually happened. And it will happen again when the Lord comes for the people and for the day of his wrath. And the battle cries will be against the fortified cities. But there won't be any fortifications. Verse 18 says, Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them. On the day of the wrath of the Lord, in the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Now, why did God do this? Or why, and why did God do that? And why will God do this? Verse 17. I will bring distress upon mankind, on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. We take sin lightly, but God does not. And he will not be mocked. He fulfilled his promise to judge sin in Jerusalem. God's chosen people experienced this. They were people who rested in their associations with righteousness. We have the temple. We have the law. We have a righteous king who has purged the land. But they were not righteous. 
In verse 7, it actually says, I know we didn't read that this morning, but we're going to read more of that. It says, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He speaks of those who will be consumed by his wrath as a sacrifice for his justice. There are two options. Either Christ pays for our sins or we pay for them ourselves. So Zephaniah, what he does here is he's now, as we, we're going to look through this text, and again, we're going to look at other verses earlier that I did not read, but he's going to address several types of people. And as the prophets often do, they usually start out there, so where the people are God going, yeah, go get our enemies. And then they start coming closer and closer and closer until he's dealing directly with them. And so we see this as we look through this text. In verse 4, the first group of people he speaks to are the idolaters. The idolaters will not stand on that day. Verse 4 says this, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priest. Anyone who rejects God will put something else in his place. Some people put the state, some people put money, some people put sex, some people put power, some people put business. But anybody who rejects Christ is worshiping something else. And they will feel the full weight of the Lord on this day. The second group he speaks to is those who have followed the Lord for a while but then turned back. Verse 6 says, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. They will cry out in bitterness on that day. There's a big movement out there right now that people like to talk about deconstructing the faith. I've deconstructed my faith. Sounds very philosophical. It is just a euphemism for apostasy. And on that day, they will cry out in bitterness. But there are people who are sitting in churches across America that used to walk with the Lord, used to call out to him, used to seek his name. But even though they come to church and go through the motions, they haven't called out to him in years. The third group that he speaks here, getting closer and closer to home now, are those with divided hearts. Verse 5 of chapter 1. Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heaven. So they're worshiping gods. They're worshiping the, the stars, listening to their astrology and their, their signs and all this type of stuff. I know I'm contextualizing differently than what they actually did, but it's the same thing. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord, yet still swear to Milcom. Milcom was just a name for a foreign god. Those who bow down to the Lord but worship something else along with him will not stand on this day. You cannot serve both God and mammon is what Jesus said. We cannot mix our worship of the one true God with false religion and atheistic principles about gender or whatever. It will be a day of great wrath. The fourth one 
is interesting because he gets very particular about a few things. In verse 8, he talks about those who make too much of clothing. Verse 8, on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in false attire. Obviously, this was a problem of the officials, but it had spread further than the officials because he said the king's sons and all who do this. You see, amongst the people of God, they were using clothing to communicate ungodly attitudes, ungodly desires. Today, when we think of clothing, we usually think of immodesty in the form of people are dressing too provocatively. That is part of one of the, the ways of doing this. But he's actually speaking of two different things. And they're still done today. The first one is they were being opulent in their dress to show somehow that they were better than others. Look what I get to wear and you don't. They had way more clothing than they needed and those clothing cost much more than anybody should ever pay for clothing. They were telling people through this, you are not at my level. John Calvin uh, is argue, argues this point, and he says at the end, he comes to a, uh, a, a point and says, here's what we need to know. We need to restrain the desires of the flesh that we may not leap over the bounds of moderation. Clothing is necessary. It has its place. You dress a certain way for church, you dress a certain way for the beach. It doesn't matter. That's not what he's talking about. But there is a point where we just start now. I'm trying to do something with my clothing that is not, that clothing is not intended for. We jump over the bounds of moderation. And this can happen with homes. This can happen with cars. This can happen with anything. It can happen with so social media selfies. It can happen with countless things. The second thing they were doing, or what they were really doing in all of this, besides saying, look, I'm better than you, is they were dressing in a way to assimilate to an ungodly culture. That's what the word foreign in this text means. These were, it wasn't the fact that they were of another race that was the problem. It was that they were worshiping false gods. And the people of God were saying, we align with them. Calvin says it this way, the people doing this no doubt imitated their dress in order to show that they regarded it with great happiness if they became friends and confederates with the ungodly. We want to show the ungodly how much we are like you and how much we want you to accept us. If that is not the state of many in the church today, I don't know what is. They were seeking admiration of others based on clothing, but their goodness was only cloth deep, and on the day of judgment, it will burn away. The fifth one is, he speaks now to the merchants. Those who made business their life, it's what they sought, it's what they desired, even more than God. Verse 11 says, 
wail, O inhabitants of Mortar. Mortar, by the way, was the center of Jerusalem. It was known as the hollow place. It was where a lot of the business took place. It could be like, uh, you know, Wall Street of the area. It says, uh, wail, O inhabitants of Mortar, for the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. There are people, even people who claim to be Christians, that believe life is primarily, most importantly, about business acumen. They inhabit the place. They don't go to work. It is their home. It is their life. It is their everything. Their entire life is about making money, often at the expense of others. They were laden with silver to buy and sell so they could gain more. They're laden with silver is what it's saying. Back then, you didn't have credit cards. If you had a lot of money and you were trying to do business, you had to carry it with you or you had to make payments. These people were laden with silver as they walked. And the whole purpose was to say, we are the important ones. We can get even more with what we have. And they thought they were safe. Here's the thing. They thought they were safe because they were in the center of the city, the hollow place, the protected place. They were the ones who provided goods to the people. So they can't be touched. They're the ones who controlled the economy and kept it stable. You can't touch us. Everything will collapse if you touch us. The Bible says they will be cut off, and they were cut off. There will be no essential workers on the great day of the Lord. Finally, the last one I'll touch on here really gets close to home. He says the complacent will feel the anguish of that day. Verse 12 says, at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. What they're saying is, the Lord's not going to do anything. Things have been going on like this for years. Nothing is going to happen. How many times have we seen guys walking down the street with signs that says, repent, the end is near. It never comes. I'm not worried about this. That's who he's speaking to. Why does the book of Zephaniah ring so dryly in many of our years, ears? Because we are unconcerned about the great day of the Lord, just like them. We have other things to attend to. We have clothes to buy. We have business to, businesses to run or to do. My friends, if we are here this morning and our Bible has, sit, has sat unopened week after week after week, our life is declaring to the world that we have no real concern about the Word of God. 
And because of that complacency, the word of God is against us. That's what this is saying. And the word of God does not change. It will not bow to our whims. It is a hammer. It breaks what does not bow. We must conform to its truth. The the, the unconcerned, those who have no fear of the Lord, have every reason to fear. Now, you might be sitting here going, wow, why, why, Doug, why such, a, why such a harsh topic? Why such a dark topic? It may seem strange to launch into such a dark teaching to a group of committed churchgoers, but I'm just following the pattern of the Word of God. This is exactly what Zephaniah does. He doesn't give a bunch of apologies before he launches into this. The people probably said, we don't need to hear this. We're with Josiah. He's cleared out the idolatry. We're worshiping the Lord again in the temple. We're the people of God. We worship regularly. We listen to the teachings of the scriptures. But Zephaniah made no mistake because these weren't his words. These were the words of the Lord. And we should all pay attention because God is the author. So again, this may not have been what you wanted to hear when you came to church this morning. But this is what God's word teaches. Now there is mercy for those who look to the Lord, which I'm going to highlight next. But part of the problem is we often forget about our need for grace because we forget this day is coming. So why did I choose to preach a sermon like this to a group of people I believe are committed Christians? Very quickly for three reasons. One, to remind us of what we all deserve. We are sinners saved by grace. We have all been guilty of every sin listed above in some way, shape, or form. And in that state, the word of God was against us. Never get to the point where you rest on your laurels. Look, I've been walking with the Lord for years. I go to church. I do all this. I have now got to the point where I deserve to be a Christian. No. No one deserves to be a Christian. We are saved by grace. We are called to walk the narrow path. And on the narrow path, there are ditches lined with dead souls all along. On one side is despair. I can't be saved. I've gone too far. Don't fall into that ditch. On the other side is presumption. I am somehow worthy of God's acceptance. And the promises of God's grace keep us from falling into the ditch of despair. And the warnings we read this morning 
keep us from falling into the ditch of presumption. Thank God for both aspects of his word. So that's the first reason I wanted to preach this sermon. The second reason is just to remind us that this day is coming. We are quick to live this life like all there is. Nothing's ever going to change. They said that in Noah's day too. But the flood came. And it's because we're not mindful of this that we often grow complacent as Christians. But this day is coming for us. And it's coming for those we love. And many are running headlong into ruin. Do you love the lost? Then you need to be aware of this day. The third and final reason is this. I want you and I want myself to seek the Lord more diligently. Look at chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. It says this. Gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation. Before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect. Gather, O shameless people. Why would God say that to us? This is not an insult. This is an invitation. He's saying, yes, I know you're shameless. And I'm offering you a way out. We are all, we've all been shameless. Some of us, we were all shameless this week in some respects. And God is inviting us home. The Lord is pointing to a remedy in this verse, these verses. The, the, these verses are not for the holy. There aren't any holy. They're for the shameless. And if you're shameless, you qualify. Our lack of righteousness is the reason why this day is coming. And we must recognize our poverty of spirit. That we have nothing, we, we deserve nothing before God. There's nothing we can pay him to accept us. We must mourn over that lost condition. And we must hunger and thirst for righteousness. And if we do that, that's all done through the Holy Spirit's work, by the way. It leads us right to the feet of Jesus. Now, what I just quoted were three Beatitudes. Christ says, these are these are dispositions of the soul that we should have our entire Christian life. They're not things we have for a little while and then we move past them. I don't need to have poverty of spirit anymore. I don't need to mourn for my sinfulness or my lack of righteousness anymore. No, these are dispositions of the soul of the Christian life because they keep us at the cross of Jesus. But those who have them, Scripture says, are blessed. When we turn to Christ, our sins are washed clean. And his righteousness is counted as ours. So verse 3, closing this out here, says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the Lord. 
Seek the Lord. If you were here this morning and you felt the sting of his word and you were humbled before it, he's saying, I'm here for you. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. Submit yourself to his word so it will not be against you. Instead, it will be for you. Charles Spurgeon tells the story of an older couple who got, their, got a Bible. They were given a Bible for the first time. This was in the 1800s. And him and his wife, they began to read it every night. And after about a week of reading, two weeks of reading, he looks at his wife, the husband looks at the wife and he says, Honey, if this is true, we're wrong. After three or four more weeks of reading, he turns to his wife and he says, Honey, if this is true, we're lost. After about three, four, five more weeks of reading, he looked at his wife and said, Honey, if this is true, we are saved by the blood of Jesus and we will stand on the great day of the Lord. The word of God that was against them was now for them. They were his children. Seek the Lord. Whether you've never come to him or you've been walking with him for years, seek him. God does not tell us to seek him and give us warnings because he is cruel. He is doing it because he loves us. And the word of God says it clearly. God does not say, seek me in vain. If you seek me, you will find me. He will take you under his wing, and blessed are the poor in spirit. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Put away your spiritual complacency and walk closely with your God. And he will hide you in the cleft of the rock on the day of his anger. But I close with one warning. Because this is what I want to ring this morning. Is the warning. It says, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the Lord. Perhaps here does not doubt God's promise to save. If you come to the Lord, you will be saved. It's not doubting God's promise to save. It's doubting our ability to sincerely humble ourselves and come to him. How many times did the Jewish people align themselves with Josiah or others and go through the rituals but they were whitewashed tombs. They honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far away. They followed the law on the outside, but hard-hearted on the inside, and they eventually went back to their old ways. There may be people here this morning who hear this sermon and go, I've got to get right with the Lord. And a week or two from now, they're going to get caught up in all the things and they're going to go right back to their old ways. The seed fell on stony ground. You may have thought you humbled yourself, but you didn't. 
Anyone who humbles themselves before the Lord and crust in Christ will be saved, but we cannot play games at coming to Christ. If the heart is not changed and it's only outward ordinances, we will not be hidden on the day of his anger. I read to you verse 14 to close. The great day of the Lord is near and hastening fast. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. It cuts us. It breaks us. It humbles us. And we thank you that it does. Because we are hard-hearted and proud. Lord, I pray that these words drive deep into our hearts through the work of your Holy Spirit. For that is the only way we can be saved. Keep us near the cross. We are so prone to wander. Lord, we can fall into the ditch of the narrow road on either side, Lord. And we thank you for reminding us of your promises and your threats to keep us walking in your path. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.